This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 497. Building empathy and building these soft skills, we don't want to do it because it takes time and it takes emotional capital. And quite frankly, I'm screwed up. And so I don't have time to work with your junk too. And so we just create and manifest these organizations that are terrible to work for. No matter how many seminars we attend, books we read, or classes we take that promise to make us good leaders, studies show that an overwhelming majority of employees leave their jobs due to poor leadership. In a society so obsessed with leadership, why are we still so bad at it? Hi, I'm Jeff, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. For I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. That's the first step. Taking what you learn and putting it into action, of course, comes next. Between this podcast and my note-making mastery course, I try to make sure you're qualified to tackle both of those very, very well. Today's book is one I'm very excited to bring you. It's co-written by someone who's been a friend of mine for probably 15 or more years. His name is Chris Mefford, and his co-author on this book is former Navy SEAL Kyle Bucket. Their book is Leadership is Overrated, How the Navy SEALs and Successful Businesses Create Self-Leading Teams That Win. I'll be asking Chris and Kyle about why they say every organization has to learn to kill its leader before it's too late, how each of them defines culture, vision, and values, the seemingly counterintuitive message of self-leading teams needing to follow their leader first, and plenty more. This past Thursday, dozens of members of my Read to Lead community sat in on a private conversation with Chris and Kyle about their book, Leadership is Overrated. In fact, over 100 of those folks got a free copy of the book in exchange for agreeing to rate and review it, share about it on social media, and talk about it on their own blog, podcast, or YouTube video. And in fact, they've been doing that all weekend long, right up to and including today. Already, that same group is geared up for our next book called Read This or Die, written by Ray Edwards with Jeff Goins. And as you might have guessed, Ray and Jeff will join us in mid-November for a private conversation with my community about that book. If participating in something like this sounds fun and exciting to you, I recommend you go on over to jeffbrown.me and start your free two-week trial of a Read to Lead Plus membership. Try it free for 14 days, and if you decide to stay, it's just $9 a month after that. That address again is jeffbrown.me. Kyle Bucket is a retired U.S. Navy SEAL and led the advanced training for both junior and seasoned Navy SEALs, ranked number one of nine highly competitive platoon chiefs, and has been instrumental in the business development of numerous Navy SEAL-founded businesses. He runs Culture Force, a consulting company, and is also regularly involved in numerous charities supporting veterans from the special forces communities. Chris Mefford is a seasoned, award-winning business executive with over 20 years of experience in marketing. He's been the vice president of the Dave Ramsey organization and co-founded and runs Culture Force, along with Kyle, a consulting firm that promotes intense coaching and training programs to help companies grow and evolve their cultures. Their new book together is called Leadership is Overrated, How the Navy Seals and Successful Businesses Create Self-Leading Teams That Win. Well, I'm excited to have both of you guys here. Kyle, uh, first of all, I'll welcome you. Thank you so much for being here and being on the podcast. Thanks for having us. 
we haven't known each other nearly as long as I've known that other guy, Chris. <laughs> welcome. I'm excited to have you here finally after all these years of doing this podcast. I'm so glad to be here. I've uh, I've been here with you from the start, listening and and <laughs> hearing and um, and watching your success, and it's incredible just to to see how long you've been at this and how successful you've been. And now I'm excited to be on it. How about that? <laughs> Who would have thought? Well, let me start with you, Chris. Tell me about this person in your life known as Mindy. <laughs> uh, Mindy is my lovely wife. She is a Canadian, um, so she's very nice, but she's also extremely tough. And so uh, that's probably what's kept our marriage together for 30 years. And likewise to you, Kyle, uh, there's an important person who goes by the name of Candace, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. I call her my Spartan queen. Uh, <laughs> you know, she really is. Uh, she keeps us in line and in shape. And before a major decision, you know, I look over at her before I uh, kick the problem into the large hole, as it were. And she gives me that. She gives me that Spartan queen nod. And I go, okay, we're doing this. <laughs> we're doing this. Well, you guys say uh, in the book that the problem is not just uh, with leaders. It's how we've come to think of leaders and also the teams who follow uh, those leaders. I'll start with you, Chris. Who ultimately did you guys write this book for? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, let me start by just saying that we went into this book thinking we wanted to write a book specifically to encourage leaders to become better, work on their culture, et cetera. And as we got into it, what we realized was the entire leadership industry is a class structure gone bad. It's broken. Um, and so let me back that up with some stats. We spend $66 billion a year in this nation on leadership development. That's workshops, conferences, books, what have you. Um, and yet year over year, survey after survey, whether it's Gallup, whether it's Forbes, 85% uh, of those surveyed hate their boss. And so our question we started to ask was, why, if we're spending so much money on leadership development, why, if we're a country so obsessed on the topic of leadership, why are we so bad at it? Why do 85% of the people hate their boss still after all these years and all this money being spent year over year? And so we started to ask those questions. And the first third of the book is really about, hey, let's just talk about the industry itself. Let's talk about the problems. Let's talk about where we see uh, some room for improvement. And then we get into it. But so we wrote the book, really one, pick a fight with the leadership industry. You guys are responsible for this jacked up thing that we have today. And you're responsible for the waste of this money. And there's the very little return on investment happening. And so we decided to tackle that. And then from there, you know, I've worked at a company, Ramsey, you know, we voted best place to work for seven years while I was there. I'm at a place in San Diego and voted best place to work for nine years. What is it these companies do? that is so different, that their people love it. They come into work every day, joyful. Um, and Kyle looks at it from the, from the angle of, hey, Kyle, um, you, you're a Navy SEAL and people respect that group of people, uh, you know, almost as the top of the military is mm -hmm. uh, what you have to do and how you serve. How do you continue to stay at the top? How do you continue to motivate people that want to be a part of it? How do you weed out those people? How do you create this culture that's sustainable, um, and from there, it just kind of blew up and blossomed and uh, we ended up uh, putting a book together. So that's kind of how we got here and why we decided to put this book out. I can remember being on the podcast that the two of you were doing together may still be doing uh, a couple of years ago. And you posed a question to me along these lines of leadership being overrated. And I remember struggling with the answer to that question. And I, and I remember thinking at the time, what do you mean leadership is overrated? I mean, I'm, I'm a leadership fan, leadership geek. What are you talking about? Well, now I have the book 
And so do about a hundred other people in my community who, uh, at the time uh, this interview is being published, have read it and have 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 just met with the two of you themselves. And early indications to me are, I'm really digging this. That's if I could summarize everybody's feelings about it so far, it would be that. And and, and I I concur. I'm I'm right there. I'm right there with them. Kyle, let me go to you next. Why do you yeah. say that every organization? And this kind of goes to what I was just saying, has to learn to kill its leader before it's too late. I mean, those are some strong words. Yeah. And we, we in uh, corporate America, we are so terrified. We are so terrified to be replaced. We're so terrified that the individual that is working for us, a direct report is going to take our job. And it's actually the exact opposite, right? And what we started focusing on and I started telling Chris about was this very unique thing that we do in the SEAL teams, which is, you know, in training exercises uh, while we're running around a village, a, a fake village or a fake jungle or fake urban environment, you know, practicing a mission, getting ready for, you know, a direct action mission or what have you, we will often go and walk over as a trainer, we'll walk over to the, the chief, the tactical lead that's in charge, the officer in command, uh, the troop commander, whoever, one of the leaders, we will often walk over to that individual and, you know, whisper in his ear, hey, you just took a gunshot to the head. You're now down, play dead. Mm. And what that allows us to do in a training situation, it allows us to see a couple of things, right? It allows us to see what happens when the leader is now killed. Right? How does the organization as a whole now vibe? Does the next guy in charge, the next guy in command, does he step up? Does he rise to the occasion? Does everyone understand very quickly who's in charge, who now takes ownership of, of the situation? And it also enables the individual that's now playing dead, if you were, it enables that individual to step back and go, hey, how good of a mentor have I been to John Doe? Right. Like how good of a mentor have I been in raising this individual up and in training this individual and in empowering this individual and in entrusting him with uh, responsibility? Have I been doing a great job? Or have I been doing a very poor job? And so the reason why we say, you know, it, it's it's an exciting and awesome experience to go through, you know, killing the leader per se, is because you get to experience all of those things when something is not on the line. Mm -hmm. And we often, Chris and I, when we're working with companies, we'll often say, hey, why don't you kill the leader? Go take a vacation for five days and be very, very verbal about it and kill yourself from the responsibility for you know five days, remove yourself from all communication and see what happens when it's not a chaotic time in the, in the life light of the business. Does that make sense? It definitely makes sense. And, and with all due respect to Chris, for just a few minutes, I'm going <laughs> to ride the uh, Kyle wave here for just a moment. So Chris, if you need to take a bathroom break or something, you know, uh, I, I've heard I'm from Kyle. He's got <laughs> lots of wisdom. I'll stay here. I'm teasing. I'm totally teasing. You guys have co-founded this company called Culture Force. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask how you define culture. I, I thought your, in particular, your tree planting example, which is uh, an illustration I had not heard before, was was a particularly powerful way to, oh, yeah. to, to, to share that. It's one of my, one of my favorites. It's funny when we were uh, when we were writing the book. I as a kid, I loved you know Karate Kid, and I loved Mr. Miyagi, right? And I loved thinking about the concept of bonsai 
trees. And, and so Chris and I were going back and forth, back and forth. And actually the bonsai tree didn't necessarily work that well as an analogy for this, but what, <laughs> what, what you're uh, referencing is great because, you know, imagine you put a tree in a pot and you leave it outside. You don't water it. You don't prune it. You don't make sure it has adequate sunlight. Perhaps even the environment is just right. And it rains enough. It might, it might be okay, but you've done nothing really to ensure that uh, that it's okay. Use it. You have essentially left it to Mother Nature. But if you put that same tree, you know, in a in a greenhouse per se, where you've taken the time to make sure the conditions are perfect, it will thrive, and you'll have very little maintenance to do down the road. You can simply place it in an ideal atmosphere. You know what Mr. Miyagi does actually at the end of one of the movies is he places it on a cliff. Right after he's done the time to nurture that tree and bring it back to life, he places it on a cliff and it's an ideal atmosphere an ideal environment and it fulfills that bonsai tree fulfills its purpose the plant will feed off of the environment created by you know nature uh, along with the groundwork that you know you laid a long time ago and it will nourish the plant as needed um, and you haven't left its success to chance on the opposite side you've done everything possible to ensure really its success right? Mm-hmm. That's culture. That's culture. That's what we call culture, right? No matter what, you're going to have a culture. You're going to have one. It's whether or not it's going to be a good culture, a positive culture, an empowering culture, a productive culture, or is it going to be a culture that has massive turnover? Your attrition rate is horrific and on and on and on, right? Mm. So whether you nurture that culture or you don't, you're going to have one. And so what we focus on in the book is saying, hey, you can nurture this. It's just, you got to make small little tweaks, be very consistent. And, you know, our book explains on how to actually do that. Right. But, you know, if you just leave it to its own devices, you know, Chris said it in the opening. I mean, 85% of America hates their boss, hates their job. Why is that? Mm. It's because we're leaving culture to the wayside. It's a, you know, maybe a, a check in the box. It's maybe, you know, the leaders pushed it down to an ERG. Hey, ER one ERG, you're supposed to focus on the organizational culture so we can check the box, right? Uh, I've told, Kyle's heard me say this a million times, but when people think about culture, they're like, hey, we put a ping pong table in the lunchroom. We're pretty cool and hit. <laughs> No offense to those of you out there who've done that. I've seen pictures of best place to work where they're showing people playing ping pong. Like that's it. But really what we're, we're, we want to target on is the lost opportunity and revenue that is generated or not generated as a result of poor culture. Mm-hmm. And so I think people look at culture and say, great, we want to create a fun place to work. Of course, everybody wants that, but we got stuff to do. We got places to go. You know, I'm not really worried whether Kyle feels warm and, and, and soft here at the office or our culture <laughs> is great, but here's the deal. It's all about engagement. And when you have a workforce that's not engaged, and here's how we define it. When your team comes in, do they give you 100% of their effort or do they only give you 25%? Because statistically, it's showing they're only giving even 30%. And so if you're able to turn the knob and create a culture where people feel valued, they feel appreciated, they feel like they have a say in their future, like they feel like they're a part of the organization, they understand the mission and where, where we're headed, they feel valued and rewarded, they're going to work at not 15%, not 30%, like 75%, 90%. You know, here's a, if you're listening to this podcast, here's what I want you to do. I want you to raise your arm as high as you can, right? Okay, good. Now I want you to raise it a little higher. 
And I'll bet every single person who did this was able to raise their arm a little higher. Yep. I asked you to raise your arm as high as you could. So then when I asked you, hey, can you raise a little higher? You found another gear. And that's essentially what we're talking about. Yeah. People come in, they put their effort in, and then they leave, but they're not working. And imagine if you could engage people at 10% more, at 25% or 50% more of where we're at, because there's room there. What that would do to your company, to your organization, to your future, to your professional development, to, the, to your country, if you will. And that's why culture matters is because we need people more engaged in what they're doing and believing what they're doing and feeling valued because they'll work harder, they'll generate higher profits, and they'll be more successful for you and everyone involved. One of the reasons why I'm so excited to talk about this book is because I can't think of two people more qualified to write it than the two of you. I mean, Kyle, I mean, just the words Navy SEALs and people, uh, no pun intended, stand at attention and, and think, okay, this is somebody I'm going to pay attention to. And Chris, uh, having worked for Ramsey and, and then also for the company uh, most recently in San Francisco and hearing about the consecutive years of best place to work for, obviously you've impacted that. Obviously you've had something to do with that. That's not a coincidence. So, so kudos to you guys for taking all of that wisdom mm-hmm. and knowledge and putting it into a, a relatively, uh, I would say, short, but chock full of wisdom book. Uh, short in the sense that most leadership books are bloated and far too long. Uh, or maybe this is an anti-leadership book, I guess. Uh, It is not that for sure. Uh, Thank you. Another question. I'll I'll start uh, with Kyle on this one. Um, How do you define things like vision and and values, would you say? Uh, This is one of my my all-time favorites because (laughs) we, we complicate everything, right? We complicate everything. We make it so challenging. Mm. And I don't know if anyone's ever broken this down so simply as we do. Maybe there are, but you know, I focus on values being who do we want to be? Those are our values. Like who do, who are we striving to be as a team, as a department, as an organization, who and what do we want to be? Right. And then vision is where are we heading? And when you focus on, Hey, who do we want to be? And then say, okay, what's, that's the values. Got it. We're all in agreement. We're all in alignment. Okay. Where are we heading? That's going to be our vision and just ensure that everyone understands those two things. Incredible, incredible things can happen. I did this actually a couple of years ago. I was a executive in a publicly traded company and you know, I brought my entire team in, my HR team, people operations team, and we did an onsite over the course of several days. And uh, we sat down and we went through our values and our vision. And I'll be darned, you know, by the by the end of the first day, I started to sit back further and further in my chair and let the team really own the values of where they wanted to be. And after the course of you know a couple of days, after you know doing multiple whiteboard sessions, putting you know yellow stickies up on a whiteboard and saying, "Hey, we want this word. We want to have innovation. We want to be fiscally responsible. You know, we want to have you know empathy for our employees." On and on and on. All the words that you've heard. Right. Side note, real quick. Whatever your values are, you own them. They're on you. Right. But I was very proud of our team because for an HR team after several days to really own it all 15 people were involved from the the junior recruiter all the way up to myself everyone was involved right and for them to land on the following two words i was i was just blown away and the following two words for their values that they landed on was integrity and innovation 
for an HR team to land on the word innovation, I was blown away, right? A people ops team to say, hey, we want to be truly innovative in our practices. We want to be truly innovative in our onboarding. We want to be truly innovative in our compensation philosophy and on and on and on. I, I mean, I was blown away. And, and what that did in that moment, right? Because everyone had buy-in to those values. Everyone had buy-in to the vision of where they wanted to get to. I never had to remind them. In fact, you know, years later, if you were to bump into one of those 15 people on the street, all 15 of them could recite you those vision and values like that. And I never, ever had to remind them of that because guess what? They came up with them. Would you add anything to that, Chris? I think that, you know, sometimes we think of values and things like that. Oh, these are cute things that people put in the the HR handbook. (laughs) Um, Or we might have a plaque on the wall. And I think, you know, that's great if you want to do that. But really, you should focus on these are your non-negotiables. You know, your company might have them, but does your department have core values or a vision or mission statement? Do you personally have one? I think those are the things that drives it, helps keep us away from the things that we shouldn't be into and mm-hmm. focus on the things that we really should. And I think when you make them too complicated also, and you make them sound too fancy, I think a lot of people in business want to go, our paradigm is whatever, you know, and whatever corporate word or speak they want to throw in. You know, my favorite mission or vision uh, statement was from Walt Disney. We make families happy. And, you know, mm-hmm. if this doesn't make families happy, then we don't do it. Mm-hmm. And so it's real clear on um, what they do or what you do. And I think the more simplistic you can make it, the more easy it is for everybody to get on board. There's this idea, uh, and it's even in the subtitle, this idea of self-led teams that is at the heart of the book. Chris, talk about how self-led teams work, because on the surface, it sounds counterintuitive when you then say a self-led team must first follow a leader. Right. So, I mean, that's kind of the, the we want to get rise attention by saying leadership is overrated. But the, the reality, what we mean by that essentially is we give too much credit to the leader. We give too much credit to the individual, you know, mm-hmm. and nobody really ever accomplished anything major, significant, completely on their own. There was a team behind them. And yet we ignore the team and we focus on that leader because we need someone uh, to mm-hmm. sort of take ownership and push people and lead people. But the problem is today, too many leaders lead out of straight of authority. It's I'm in charge. I make the shots. I make the call. And they don't pour into the team. And we see that. You know, if we go back to the statistics I shared earlier, you know, 85% of those people surveyed hate their boss. So it comes down to the fact that, you know, self-led teams are something we want to focus on. Let's take the onus and the focus off the leader and put it back onto the team itself. And so if the leader says, hey, my job is to make sure the team is awesome and the team succeeds and the team gets all the credit, that just changes the entire dynamic completely. Mm-hmm. But whenever we say you're the leader, go off to your leadership training conference without your team and come back and then tell your team how smart you are now, or we'll <laughs> elevate you into leadership without giving you any kind of training. And your, your team was like, man, this guy was a jerk, but he was the best salesperson or the best production person. Um, and now he's leading us just because he was, you know, that kind of thing lends itself to going, okay, let's take the onus off the leader. Let's focus on the team. And when you create a team that's self-led, you can do amazing and incredible and fantastic things. You know, I always joke, it's not really a joke, but you you know, you probably have a hard time. Most people uh, naming a single Navy SEAL, but I bet you've heard of SEAL team three or Mm -hmm. SEAL team five. And so those are the teams that get the most significant kind of wins, you know, 
Apple became Apple, not because Steve Jobs drove it. That was later. Apple became Apple because Steve Jobs got delegated out of that CEO role. And he created a little team over here that worked on its own, that created all the stuff we know as Apple now. And he did that because he said, give me a a nimble team, a quick team that I could do. I think you and I have talked about a book. Um, I forget the name of it, but it was essentially Steve Jobs kept the meeting small. Don't bring people from your team to lead portions of the meeting on your behalf, you come ready. We're going to keep this meeting small and nimble because the the smaller the team, the better that they are at reacting and moving. And when we focus on motivating that team, then they can do and accomplish amazing things. Yeah. And Jeff, it goes to the point of starting, right? Like you have to start, someone has to start, right? But, you know, we we focus on the principles of allowing, of giving that leader the opportunity to actually build and create trust, create processes around, hey, how do I now structure a self-led team? How do I hire for a self-led team? How do I build this self-led team? And we understand, we fully understand everyone has to start somewhere, right? But we focus on saying, hey, at what point can you now go and start really crafting this? And we believe it is really from the beginning. Um, Chris, in a sort of post-COVID world where so many companies, so many people are uh, working remotely, how much does culture still matter in that, in that environment? Well, Jeff, this is a, a good question. So I'm working with a company now. Their the, the name is TCW Global out of San Diego, and they are an uh, employer of record. And so what that means is they take on all the employer stuff. They'll hire your team. They'll onboard your team. They manage payrolling for your team. They'll oversee all the benefits for your team. If you get sued, it's, it's the lawsuit that they manage. So it's really a, a massive protection that out there, one, to say, hey, you guys should you should look into TCW Global because it's an amazing company if you're interested in that. But two, with 15,000 contingent workers all over the world working remotely, we have quite a bit of data. And that data says that remote workers find it harder to be fully engaged with their company that they do work for. But if you can get them on board and, and help them focus on the culture and make them feel like they're more part of the team and that there's a culture there for them, just like the people on the ground that come into the office every day, that they are significantly more uh, better performers overall. And so mm. even if you're remote, culture matters because honestly, while we enjoy sitting in our offices at home and doing our work at our own pace, we still feel isolated. We still want to feel like we're part of something bigger than ourselves. We still want to be proud of the company or the person we're doing work for. And so in that regard, culture matters probably twice as much. Chris, talk to me a bit about uh, your view of empathy. I think sometimes people view empathy as 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 weak even. Uh, is empathy something that can can be taught and, and is it weak or is it something is it something else? Uh, you know, Brene Brown had a TED talk that delved into this with over 120 million views. And I suspect there are more, that was more than just women who were looking at that. And I, I think when we look at empathy as leaders, we always want to think of the hardcore CEO up in the penthouse floor who's telling people everything and, you know, explaining how to do things and firing people. And the reality is, you can get a lot further in life if you focus on the soft skills and that's being empathetic. Mm -hmm. Um, As a matter of fact, Boston consulting surveyed 200,000 workers worldwide 
And the number one thing that people wanted uh, was not pay. Pay was number eight. So there were seven things people wanted out of their job more than pay. Number Mm. one was appreciation and recognition. And number two was empathy. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to felt heard. They wanted to... um, you to understand what they're going through, that sometimes the stuff we ask our team to do is hard. Um, and we shouldn't just say, you know, you should be thankful to have a job or you should be grateful that you're even here and you get to do it. And that's empathetic. Hey, I know what I'm asking you to do is hard. I know you're going to have to put in some extra hours. I know that we don't, we don't, and we can't pay you what you're worth or what you deserve, but I want you to know, I see you, I hear you, and I can't help but appreciate you every single day that you come in. And so that's just empathy. Um, oh my goodness, your dog died. That's sorry. I'm going to go in my office and work. Well, why don't you go take the rest of the day off? I'm sorry, your dog died. Go take some time. We'll cover for you. Or, oh, you're having, you're getting divorced today. You're signing the final papers. I'm so sorry that you've had to go through that. Here, let me get you some chocolates and I want you to go out on lunch on me. And I want you to take, you know, it's, we just act like it's like life is over here and work is over here and they never map leaders. Some of the times come to the conclusion they should never intertwine. Mm. And that's just ridiculous. And I think the best leaders and the ones who say that they love their boss, you, what you'll find statistically is those bosses tend to be more empathetic. So if you want to be respected, you want people to do more for you, you want to get them more engaged, tell them you care about them. Be more empathetic to their needs. Ask them what's wrong, what's going on in their life. You know, dig a little deeper. Part of the challenge we have, and Colin and I have talked a lot about this too, is when it comes to making a change in an organization, we want to snap our fingers and we want it done. We want to send you to a conference over the week and come back and change everything. Um, And the truth of the matter is, the reason it's so hard and the reason that so many people still find frustration day in, day out is because it takes emotional capital and it takes time. I I can't just tell you what to do. I've got to build a relationship with you. Then I have to be invested in you. And then I have to be, I have to care about what you're going through and what's happening. And it's just easier for me to say, I'm your boss. Just do what I ask. Then put that energy in. And here's what Colin and I talk about. You can go through Hell Week as a Navy SEAL. And we often think, wow, I made it through Hell Week as a Navy SEAL. But Kyle will tell you, it takes often two years before you become a full-fledged SEAL. It takes time. It takes effort. And building empathy and building these soft skills, we don't want to do it because it takes time and it takes emotional capital. And quite frankly, I'm screwed up. And so I don't have time to work with your junk too. And so we just create and manifest these organizations that are terrible to work for. Yeah. And, you know, to your point, Jeff, is can it be taught? Absolutely. I I beat myself up in the book and I talk about a period of time where I was not a parent. I didn't have any kids. And there were guys in my uh, in my platoon that had kids and I wasn't fair with them. Right. Like I was mission first. I was focused on the bottom line. I was focused on the objective and I was not empathetic to their needs of being fathers and trying to be good husbands uh, and, and take care of their family. And uh, lo and behold, fast forward years later, <laughs> I become a parent and uh, and I look back at that time and go, oh, what a knucklehead I was and um, and how I did not respect, you know, all of the burdens that they had as as parents. And that being said, on the flip side of it, to the point of being taught, right, what many will find out once they start to Chris's point, being more and more engaged with the individuals is that the world's a wonderful place and people are amazing. And when you're actually engaged and you start finding out 
what really drives people. We talk about this in the book, what drives people and what motivates them. You get into some really, really interesting conversations. I mean, people are, this world's amazing and people are amazing and everyone's individualism is amazing. And understanding, for example, right? One of my FPNA members was a quiet behind the scenes violinist, a, co- a concert level violinist. And I, and I never would have known that if I hadn't just had a, had a moment or a walk around a pond with that individual until like the 23 minutes into the conversation, right? To find out and discover new things about amazing people. So I think once you, to the point of, can it be taught? I think the more and more you do it, the more and more you find out real new and exciting things about the individuals that you're spending 40 or 50 hours a week with, yet it gets more and more interesting and it can be taught. This next question dovetails nicely with my empathy question, I think. And that's a question related to communication styles. And I want to start with you, Chris, because one of the organizations you used to work for, uh, Ramsey Solutions, it's now called, is is famous for being really, really good at this and understanding you know, what someone's style is and Myers-Briggs and et cetera, et cetera, whatever tests, you, if you want to call it that, they're using these days. Just understanding how the person you're speaking with receives information as much as anything else. Talk about what leaders and teams need to understand about dealing with the differing communication styles that inevitably make up that team. So typically, I don't want to hire people who communicate just like me because I can be terrible at communicating in this regard. I Just give me the details. Just give me the bullet points. I make a decision and we go off. There are those people I need around me who manage details and they need to coordinate things and they need all the information to make it tactically possible for us to do the things we want to do. And if I asked them to talk like I do, it would shut their brains down because they, they're just like, I don't have enough information to give you everything that you need. And so, yeah, we use the disc, we call it a disc personality profile, but the, the reality is it's just a communication tool. And it's whether you're a D and I and S and a C, you know, dominant influencer, uh, I think it was like compliant or I forget all the SCs, but the S was more of a steady, regular person who comes in every day, doesn't really create any drama. They just do their job. They're amazing, reliable. They're really good with relationships. But understanding the different components really makes a difference. So I had a gal who worked for me. Her name was Krista. I went into my boss after she'd been there about six weeks and say, hey, Krista's not working out. We, you know, I give her stuff to do. She sends me emails back with like 50 questions. By the time I answer all our questions, I might as well have just done the project myself. And he looked at me and I was ready for him to go, okay, let's, let's figure out what to do. He looked at me and said, she's not the problem. You are. (laughs) And I was like, what? He's like, you're just not talking to Krista in a way she, she needs. You're asking her to do something and manage all the details, but you don't give her all the stuff that she needs. Mm. So here's what I would recommend. So I took his advice. I called Krista and say, Hey, Krista, this really isn't working because you're giving me all these questions. I'm doing all the work, blah, blah, blah. I said, how about we do this? How about we meet in the middle? I'll bring you in earlier. I'll give you more information from the start, but you have to take that information and then ferret out a bunch of stuff and run with it. And she said, okay, I can do that. And it was the beginning of a wonderful relationship for six years. Wow. And um, I think back, I was just going to let her go because she didn't communicate like me. And yeah, she was exactly what I needed, but I didn't want to take the time initially to communicate in a way that she needed for us to be successful. And I blamed her for it. And I wonder how many people out there who do the same thing, you know, it's not about me. 
Um, it's about you again, leadership is overrated, focus on the team and you won't go wrong. And so you have to really be intentional about that. But understanding people's communication style is really, really important. There are different ways to communicate. And if you're mad because somebody doesn't communicate the way you do, well, you have to ask yourself if you should even be a leader, if that's what triggers you. Kyle, I want to, I want to get you in here because, you know, when I think militaristic communication styles, I think command and control and yelling and screaming and what Chris just said, based on my limited knowledge of the military, having never served, doesn't seem to jive with what I know about it. So set me straight if I need to be set straight. You know, Chris and I actually joke about this. If we could create a magic little pill, we we would be approaching half a billion or a billion dollar valuation. And 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 for real, I, I do mean that sincerely. Meaning, you know, I have a lot of. We work with several organizations and charities that focus on military and special forces transition into the workforce. Mm-hmm. And what I joke about that magic pill is, if I could give that pill to all of the executives that are coming off of 20, 25, 30 year careers in the in special forces. And I could give them a pill that would help them understand civilian corporate America vernacular mm. overnight. And we could, Chris and I could take a small, small slice of the pie. <laughs> we would be very wealthy individuals. <laughs> uh, and the reason why is because a lot of people thinking of, you know, Navy SEALs, I'll use us as an example, right? They think of us as running around, blowing stuff up, shooting bad guys. And we do do that and we do it very, very well. But we also run the enterprise, right? We're also overseeing our budgets. We're overseeing our training and curriculum development. Uh, We're overseeing infrastructure development, military construction projects, and on and on and on. But what's different, right? To your point, Jeff, is our communication style is completely different. And what we have in the military is called communication brevity. We actually even shorten that. We call it comms brevity, right? Meaning if I say one word, you know, a, a pro word, that would mean a paragraph to my, my entire platoon. And they'll execute on that one word, that pro word, an entire operation off of one word Mm -hmm. and on and on and on. And so we break down our communications to very, very simple. In fact, when you listen to a seal net frequency during an operation, it's very quiet. It's very quiet. It's potential enemy alpha 17, Roger approaching now. And then it's just silence, right? Yeah. And so for that, for that communication barrier to for the individuals to translate that into corporate America, you know, and for those to the to the subject at hand, for those employers that are now receiving executives like you know, senior Navy SEALs or senior PJs or whoever, and they don't understand that yet, or they're not empathetic to the difference in the communication styles, they're missing out on a great opportunity to employ a world-class executive. And so Chris and I say, hey, focus on the the various, there's what, 10 different major communication styles. Some people really need repetitive communication. Some people need it in training. Some people need it written. Some people need it you know, verbally uh, communicated where they have multiple questions. Understanding what that is for each one of your individuals is a really powerful thing. Yeah. Well, Chris and Kyle break up the book into three phases, two of which we've delved into. Phase one is define, uh, phase two is develop. Haven't really asked much about phase three they call sustain. So with that knowledge, guys, I'll, I'll throw it to either one of you who wants to take this and the other can, can follow up if, if you like. What have I not asked you about that you want to make sure we know about, uh, whether it's from 
phase three or something else? I think two things. One is there's a paradox and, and leadership today, we want to elevate the leader. We want to tell the leader how great they are. And so the leader starts to believe that they're great and everything hinges on them. One, which creates an environment where they're afraid to ask for help. And they should, because the team is dying to help them if they would just ask. And two, when you give all the credit to the team and you don't keep any for yourself and you say it was the team and Kyle did all this and you know they're all responsible, the, the paradox is this, you actually come out looking greater than you thought you would have if you held on to all the credit. Your team appreciates it. Your The bosses you work for see it and appreciate it, probably even wish they were more like you. And so focusing on the team, giving away the credit, it's the opposite of what you think is going to happen, happens. People are going to realize that you're the one in charge. People are going to realize that you're a great leader, and they're probably going to realize that you need more responsibility and 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 should be given greater kind of opportunities. So that's first. Step. And the second thing I wanted to know, Jeff, is that this book isn't full of just Navy SEAL stories or business <laughs> stories. We've got stories in there from Aretha Franklin to Icelandic soccer, to 19th century explorers, to monks, and and in between. We wanted to make this, Kyle and I said, we don't want a boring business book where it's just full of statistics and data and all these things. We wanted to write something that we thought would be fun and interesting to read. So that's the second thing I want them to know. I have to, to say, I was very surprised. I did not read your book expecting to read about Aretha Franklin uh, in particular. And I learned <laughs> I things it. about the start of her, her career I did not know. So thank you for that, Kyle. Yeah, I love it. I love it. You know, for me, Chris, Chris summed it up so well. But for me, you know, I'll give you a little insight of the author's perspective, because what's really exciting for me to hear right now from individuals who have been reading it is when I hear someone say, I really think you guys are onto something mm-hmm. that signals to me that they are truly capturing and absorbing the essence of the book, meaning that they're absorbing that it's so much more than just empowering your people or empowering your teams or entrusting those. The reader is now coming to the realization that they can create a culture that does it instead. And when that light bulb goes off and we get to witness that light bulb, it's a pretty powerful thing. So thank you so much, Jeff. We appreciate you. My pleasure. I've got two uh, brief questions I'll ask, not directly related to the book before we wrap it up. And in the interest of time, I'm going to ask if each of you could keep your response to this next question to one, meaning one book. If you could recommend one book, Kyle, one book, Chris, that you would say has has shaped your life and or career the most, Mm. what would it be? Uh, Chris, I'll start with you. Uh, This one's easy. It was Seth Godin's Lynchpin. I'm not even sure I finished reading it. I'll be honest with you. I got to this part where he said, ask the question, when you ask most leaders, what do they want from uh, somebody on their team? They'll say, I just want somebody who shows up on time, does their work and doesn't create any drama. Uh, And the next sentence is what changed my life. He said, the problem is those people never get promoted. Now, I think what he meant was you should probably still show up on time. Um, (laughs) But the people who don't challenge the status quo aren't the ones that are going to drive the company forward. And I was in a place where I'm like, I'm just going to come in put my head down and do what I'm supposed to do and make everybody happy. And then I'll just go do my own stuff, which created an environment where I didn't like. And then I said to myself, I can't do it. I won't move ahead. And I sent an email off to my boss's boss, not talking bad about my boss, but saying, hey, here's a project I've been working on. I really think we should all discuss it. I think it's really important. And I can point to that day specifically where that changed the entire trajectory of my career because that boss responded, let's get together. What a great idea. My boss came to me and said, why didn't you take it to me first? And I was like, I have been. 
I didn't know what else to do. You're always frustrated. And from there, um, I, you know, long story short, I ended up getting promoted and taking my boss's role out of that. But, you know, Lynchpin really changed me because it helped me understand, hey, what's it take to be an invaluable, indispensable person on the team? Mm-hmm. Wow. What about you? Well, I would be remiss if I didn't fully admit that it is the Bible. But for this audience, I will focus on... Um, more something along the lines of a professional. And, you know, for me, it is the goal. I don't know if you ever read that book. It's an older book. Mm. Um, it's an incredible book by Elia Goldratt and Jeff Cox. I think they wrote it. I think it's like on its 30th edition. Yeah. Um, I think it was originally published in the 80s. But, uh, you know, it walks through an individual with a plant, a plant manager whose factory and his marriage are failing. And to revitalize the plant, he follows, you know, piecemeal advice from some elusive former college professor who teaches, for example, that reduction in the efficiency of some plant operations may make the entire operation more productive. And it's a it's a wonderful read. It's a very entertaining read. It's actually an even better the audible on Amazon is phenomenal. It's very entertaining. So I, re- I really enjoyed that. Recommended for anyone who's in the interest of the state of the American economy, for sure. <laughs> Jeff, I want to change my vote um, to read to lead was the buck. That <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. I'm sorry, Jeff. <laughs> I missed that from the start. Sorry. Yeah, I was trying to fish for that, but it just, it just <laughs> yeah. failed miserably. Going back to something you said earlier, Chris, uh, I, I was very much a rule breaker and pushing the envelope and uh, my last job got promoted six times in 13 years until I did it wow. one too many times. <laughs> and, and that's why I'm here. Uh, so, so you do need to be careful with that and how you communicate. And, and then I got a little, I would say a little too big for my britches at some point. Hmm. Um, last question. Uh, we have just a few minutes left. I want to ask you a personal knowledge management related question. I, I, hmm. I have a course called Note Making Mastery, uh, helping people to, uh, first of all, sift through just a plethora of information they're bombarded with on a daily basis, how to organize that, what to keep, what to ignore, Ooh. how to make the most out of it, how to do something with it at the end of the day. Any tips or strategies either of you use with regard to managing uh, your personal knowledge? Well, this is right up Kyle's this is his baby, but I will, I will share one thing. What I've noticed is if I need to remind myself of something and I write a note, whether it's I put it in my phone or I talk to text to say, remind me or an email, what I think can help everybody is sometimes we'll jot something down quick and send it. And then stop me if this sounds familiar. We'll look back on it and go, what in the world was I talking about? What did I need? And so the trick is I take an extra few seconds to write exactly like a full sentence of what I want to do and why that's important. Mm-hmm. And I've stopped forgetting why I wrote those things down. And, and it helps me stop kind of missing the details. You're writing your notes, as I say, in the cohort for future you. You're giving them context so that when future you comes back to them six months later, future you knows what the heck's going on because future yes. you is somebody else. And so we need to write our notes from the standpoint of as if we're writing them for somebody else. Kyle, what do you got? I use, I'm very, very specific in my note taking. Uh, if you ask Chris, he'll tell you I don't go anywhere without, I literally do not leave the house without my remarkable two. Um, I think you Google remarkable two, you'll find it. Uh, and this is, you know, a tablet style device. And what I've done is I create folders for every month. And so every day I create a new note you know, September, you know, 22nd is the note and uh, I'll have pages. And what's so great and how I've cataloged this is I could go back to 
if I were to go back to the week of us of going public of our IPO and I were to go into, you know, a Tuesday on that day, you'll see I have 32 pages of notes mm. and I can find those. And what's so great about the remarkable too, is I can find those in a matter of six seconds, mm. really. And so that's why I love this tool. I'm a massive note taker. Uh, I'm, I'm penciling away in every single meeting, including this one. <laughs> great advice, guys. Thank you so much. All of it. The book again is called Leadership is overrated how the navy seals and successful businesses create self-leading teams that win chris has a meeting in 42 seconds i think <laughs> we got him out here on time love it uh, guys thank you so much for being here. i really appreciate it thanks for having thank us you, Jeff. for more on the book leadership is overrated how to connect with kyle and chris online or maybe follow up on the books they recommended and to find out more about a read to lead plus membership and how you could be a part of some of our future author discussions live Go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash 497 for episode 497. Again, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 497. Hard to believe we're just three weeks away from episode 500 of the Read to Lead podcast. What are your thoughts about episode 500? Should I do something special? Should I take a look back at the previous 10 years of the podcast? Maybe a solo episode? Or perhaps, like all the rest, another interview with a fantastic author? What do you think I should do? Send me your feedback, jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Hope to see you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.